Good morning, Scarlet City. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for our digital worship gathering. Uh, if you're new or you consider yourself a visitor, we want to say a special thank you for joining us. And we'd love to hear from you. There is a spot on our website where you can fill out a Get Connected card. And uh, you might want to fill that out because you want to uh, get more connected, join a city group, or maybe you want to connect with a pastor, or maybe you just want to be added to our email list. Whatever it is, we would love to hear from you and connect with you. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, before we jump in this morning, there's a couple of announcements that I wanted to share. Firstly, our city groups are entering into a season of going through a curriculum called Godspeed. And Godspeed is really uh, an opportunity for us to dive into what it means to be present. Present with God, present with ourselves, present with uh, each other in community. And so if you're not a part of a city group, uh, I would like to really encourage you to consider uh, joining one. Um, we are, yeah, it's a great opportunity to get to know other people within the church. And it's also, uh, like I said, an opportunity in this season to really dive into what it means to be present. And secondly, we have um, uh, equipping classes that we've been holding throughout the summer. And we do have one more that is starting next week. So if you uh, are interested in checking out more about that class, you can find more information on our website under a tab. Uh, there's an equipping classes tab that will take you to the page with, with that information. So I want to encourage you to consider that as well. Well, friends, hear, hear this call to worship this morning uh, from Matthew 16, verse 25. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Friends, I know many of us during this season have been uh, challenged to take a look at what our lives are about. And so this morning as we come to worship, uh, I just want to invite us to take this opportunity to turn our eyes toward Jesus, to allow him to speak into our lives and allow him to give us wisdom as to what our lives should be focused around. So it's with that heart and that attitude that I invite us to sing together this morning.
Well, friends, we're going to hear from Kevin Veridi next. Kevin is a member of Scarlet City and uh, works for an organization in Columbus that is focused on refugees. So he's going to share a little bit and then we're going to spend some time praying together. Good morning, I'm Kevin Verady, a member here at Scarlet City. I'm also the director of an organization, Immigrant and Refugee Elevate Group. And I have the privilege today to lead us in a prayer for refugees. In a world today, there are almost 80 million displaced people. Some of these people are displaced within their own country and many have had to flee their home country and are now living in refugee camps. Of those living in refugee camps, uh, less than 1% will ever be resettled to a new home. God has brought many refugees here to us in Columbus to be our neighbors. There are people living here originally from Somalia, um, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Bhutan and Nepal and many other nations. These refugees in our city have been particularly impacted by the COVID-19 um, crisis. Um, they often are working in jobs that are particularly hard hit, such as the restaurant industry. Um, they struggle to be able to understand and get benefits. I've tried to assist with benefits and found it very complicated myself. Um, they do not have savings, so it's very difficult to weather times of unemployment. And a particular concern is as schools are having children try to learn from home, this is a particular challenge with families where the parents a very limited English, both speaking and writing, and often there are not computers within the home. But it's also true that these people have learned resiliency through difficult times. So they actually have a lot to teach us in the time of this pandemic. In Deuteronomy, God says to love the sojourner, and then he commands us to also love these people. So please join me as we pray. God, I, we thank you for your love and particularly your love for vulnerable people. You see all of the 80 million displaced people and you see their suffering. We first pray for an end to the causes of why there are so many people being displaced in our world today. We pray for the end of wars. We pray that there will be peace and justice in countries such as Somalia, Syria, Syria, and the Congo. We pray for the millions of people in refugee camps, many who have been there in these camps for over 20 years. We pray for a home for these people. We pray for refugees in our city. We pray that they will feel welcomed and loved, particularly by your church. We pray for jobs and adequate housing. We particularly pray for refugee children trying to get an education in this age of COVID. We pray for your church here in Columbus that we may show the love of Jesus and share Jesus with these people you have brought to our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Mike will now be preaching from Philippians. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you're tuning in with us. My name is Mike Juday. I'm one of the pastors here at Scarlet City Church. As was said before, we're just so thankful that you're participating with us in our digital worship gathering. If you call Scarlet City Church your home, or if you consider yourself a visitor, we're so thankful that you're with us as we 
dive into our third week of looking at the letter to the church in Philippi. One of, I think, the top, actually, the top fear, commonplace fear in America is the fear of public speaking. The fear of uh, speaking an important message, uh, if it's an important meeting, or if you're giving a presentation in school or at work, or speaking in front of a lot of people, there is a real fear of public speaking. That is the top fear of top common fear in America. Now, there is some good news for those of you who have that fear, and it's something called a power pose. A power pose was a case study done that said if you strike and hold a pose that connotes power, you will grow in confidence. So a power pose is like standing like a superhero with your hands on your side and your chest puffed out or standing like a bodybuilder flexing your muscles that this would help you grow in confidence. Now, don't discount it. I've done it before and benefited from it. But more than that, there's an actual study done that collected data and received analysis about what it means. And what they found out was that your perspective of who you were changed how you interacted with each other and with your life. Your perspective of yourself changed how you interacted with others and how you interacted with yourself. Now, I don't need to spend really any time trying to convince you that fear and anxiety is a normative part of life. In the current state of our life in America, we're in the midst of a global pandemic that uh, a lot of people have died from. We're in the midst of a national civil unrest where we're fighting for justice for our black and brown fellow Americans. Anxiety and fear is such a normal part of life. And for these real situations, there needs to be something more than a power pose for us to be able to engage, to be able to participate in such a hard and trying season of life. But something that we see in, in this book, in this uh, letter to the Philippians, is that Paul, the author, is sitting in jail. He's awaiting trial for the potential execution for preaching the gospel. But he's writing this letter and he's expressing great joy in the gospel. How can that be? How can Paul have joy? What we want to look at today and what we've been looking at is that Paul can have joy in the gospel, not in his circumstances, but a real deep-rooted joy in spite of circumstances. And what we're going to look at today is how the gospel gives us a new perspective on suffering. How the gospel gives us a new perspective on suffering. So let's read our text together. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 30. It says this, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed by that which complete, uh, with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now, if I go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me. Yet, I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between these two. 
because I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of, uh, with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith, so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus. Then, when I come back to you, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. Since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I am facing. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that we would receive it with eagerness, with anticipation that you would speak to us through the Holy Spirit. We thank you that the Holy Spirit speaks to each and every one of us. And we pray that we would be able to hear his encouragement, his exhortation, and his, his admonishment, and that you would give us the strength to respond accordingly. We pray all of this in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So remember, when we look at this text, we're asking the question, how does the gospel give us a new perspective on suffering. Paul in prison, awaiting execution. It's outside of its control. He's writing this letter. He's expressing joy. And he even says that uh, suffering is a grace of God. So how can that be a reality for Paul? When we look at how the gospel gives us a new perspective on suffering, we think back to what we talked about before. Our perspective of ourselves shapes how we interact with others and how we uh, interact with this world. So we're going to look at two specific gospel identities that we see in this text. Two specific gospel identities that change our perspective on suffering. The first gospel identity is that we are servants of Christ. We are servants of Christ. In verse 19 through 24, he, Paul, he shares this tension that he feels between living and dying. He's in prison. Things aren't looking great. And now when we say he's in prison, this isn't like those Finnish jails that look like uh, an, an upscale Airbnb. These, but even despite his circumstances, if it's an upscale Airbnb, if he's in home, uh, if he's prisoned at home, or if he's in a deep dungeon, he's awaiting possible execution. How? Can he have this perspective of joy? But he says this in the beginning, verse 19. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. How can he know that? How can he know that this situation can turn out for his deliverance? Does he know that he won't be executed? No, that's not the case. Is Paul speaking specifically of a theological, uh, spiritual deliverance? Um, some scholars believe so, but... When really put under the microscope, that perspective doesn't hold up. So when Paul speaks of deliverance, what is he even saying? 
We're going to look back, if you turn left in your Bibles, to the book of Job. Job speaks of this deliverance. Job is a book in the Old Testament and tells the story of a man who's really experiencing pain and suffering. He's lost his job, his career, uh, everything is gone. His children have died, his wife has left him, and now his health is failing miserably. And Job, he says this in chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Refrain from talking with me so that I may speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in peril and take my life in my hands? Even if he slays me, I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Moreover, this will become my deliverance. For no godless person would come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears be attentive to, uh, to my explanation. Now hear this. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I am right. Paul here, when he says, I know that this is my deliverance, he's actually kind of pointing back to Job. He's stating that he will be vindicated. He's stating that he will be deemed right when Paul views himself as a servant of Christ, he acts accordingly in Christ's will. He knows that even in the face of death, he will be vindicated. His identity is so deeply rooted as a servant that his life is a tool, that his death is a relief because he'll be with Jesus. And he even says in verse 21, living is Christ and dying is gain. He recognizes that in his body, in life or death, he's a servant of Christ. Now, being a servant is not a highly sought-after profession in our culture. Maybe you worked in the service industry. Maybe you're currently working in the service industry. I worked as a server at a restaurant for four years in college. It was a restaurant called Red Hot and Blue, and my friend Danny Jackson worked there too, but after me, uh, so we kind of had staggering uh, times there. And, and not in every case, but in many instances, I was treated like complete garbage by the customer. I was treated like filth by the person who I was there. The only reason I was at that restaurant was to serve them. They treated me so poorly. For many of us, servanthood is antithetical to well-being. Being a servant means that you put your well-being aside. So we avoid being a servant. We avoid that profession, that calling, that life. But in all reality, we are all serving something or someone. There's not a moment of your life that you're not living in service to something or someone. Think about it this way. Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you get out of bed? Maybe you get out of bed to go to work. Maybe you get out of bed to take care of your kids. Maybe you get out of bed to go, uh, to go work out at the gym or go for a run. See, every decision that we make is a decision in servitude to an ideal which we think deserves and dictates our attention and affection. Every decision that we make is a decision that goes to serving an ideal that deserves our attention and affection. And if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, at the end of the day, more often than not, the person that dictates 
what deserves our attention and affection is me. I dictate what deserves my attention and affection. Maybe for you, when we see that text to live as Christ, living as Christ, if we're honest with ourselves, living is to get to the weekend. Maybe it's living is for an impressive career. Maybe it's living is for love, or living is for respect, or living is for acceptance. The list could go on and on and on. Everything that we do, we are in service to something or someone. Many of those pursuits are noble, good pursuits, but what happens when it doesn't work out? In every instance, dying is a loss. What happens when she doesn't say yes to a second date? What happens when you get a poor grade or you get passed up for the promotion at your work? What happens when you've poured your life into your children and they do not reciprocate with love, at the very least for appreciation? None of these pursuits, none of these masters, which we serve and position as our masters, can provide such a great power that it transcends death, that death can be a gain. Living is Christ and dying is gain. In our text, Paul yearns to die. He says, I deeply desire it. There's this emotive uh, language used. I want to be with Christ. But why does he say it's good to stay? Why does he say it's good to stay here? A couple verses later, Paul says that it's, it's vital for your sake that I remain in the body. It's vital for your progression and for your joy in faith. So what do we see here? We see that when Paul views himself as a servant of Christ, he lives his life to the benefit of others. When he lives in service to Christ, he lives his life in benefit to others. That's why he's in prison. Do we live for the sake of others? Do we consider other people when we make our decisions? When we look at where we've come to in life, are we there because we've considered the benefit of others in service to Christ? When we live as servants of Christ, when we embrace that gospel identity as a servant of Christ, we get a new perspective of suffering, a new perspective of success, a new perspective of how we can live and engage in allegiance to Christ. The second gospel identity that we see in this text, not only are we servants of Christ, but we're also citizens of heaven. The gospel identity that we get to live as citizens of heaven. We're going to look at verse 27, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit more about the colony of Philippi. So Philippi was a colony of Rome, and they were a particularly patriotic colony. You see, in one of his Roman conquests, Mark Antony, uh, when he won and the defeated army surrendered, rather than killing them, he extended mercy to them. He granted them their life, and he gave them land. Can you guess where that land was? You guessed it, in Philippi. 
So Philippi is filled with people who were opponents of Rome, who received the mercy and blessing of Rome. So you can imagine the great sense of the great uh, excitement to be a part of that Roman culture. And it wasn't just those people, the whole colony was excited about being a Roman colony. The architecture and the way they designed the city was based after Rome, even down to the cobblestones. Even they spoke the language of Rome, which was Latin instead of speaking Greek. These folks were Roman. Now let's look at verse 27. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word worthy hits pretty heavy, doesn't it? Can we live a life worthy of the gospel? Can we live in such a way that says, man, we get it. We earned it. We deserve the gospel. We're living worthy of the gospel. No, that can't be true. In Ephesians, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Ephesians. He says that you cannot be saved by works that nobody is worthy. So what did Paul mean when he says, conduct your lives in a manner worthy? What he meant was to live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. Live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. So Paul here, he's directly speaking the language to a people that either were Roman citizens and proud of it or wished that they were Roman citizens. And he was speaking the language of citizenship to connect to their cultural understanding of what it means to live in a reality. Paul is saying that the gospel of Christ is what dictates how we live. You get to live in the realities of all that Christ said he was and all that he says that you are. We are invited to live in a reality of the gospel. A minister who was extremely uh, influential to my formation was uh, Dr. Terry Wardle, and he leads a ministry called Healing Care Ministries. When he talks about living in the reality of who we are in Christ, he uh, connects it, makes it similar to the idea of an eagle living like a pig. And you think of an eagle, an eagle has the ability to fly and catch fresh food and eat good food. Now imagine that same eagle rolling in the mud with pigs and eating pig slop. Now, if you see that, well, first of all, take a picture or a video, because I'm sure that that would, in some strange way, be adorable. I would watch it at the very least. But if we see that, what we'll notice is, man, that eagle is not living in the reality of who they are. That eagle is rolling in the mud when they can soar over the treetops. That eagle is eating pig slop when they could catch and eat fresh fish. This eagle is not living in the reality of who God made them to be. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel in Christ. Live in the reality of who you are in Christ. So what does this mean? What does it mean practically for us to live in the reality of the gospel of Christ? to live as a citizen of heaven. Well, Tim Keller, he puts it so succinctly, and I love the way that he wrote this, so I want to read it. It says, The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. 
What does it mean to live in that reality? Because to be honest, it doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't, life doesn't always feel like good news. I don't feel like I'm being renewed. I don't feel like our community, our city is being renewed. So what does it mean to live in that reality? Looking uh, at the second part of verse 27, Paul says this, that we would be in one spirit, that we would have one mind, and we'd be contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or another way to say that is one purpose. So what does it mean to live in the reality of the gospel? It means we have one spirit, one mind, one purpose, and you are a part of that one. You play an important part of what God is doing in this community and in this city. The same way that Paul said, if I go on living in the body, it would be for your sake. So our lives as servants, as citizens, servants of Christ, citizens of heaven, that we live to the benefit of others. We live to the benefit of Columbus, that we get to be a part of what God is doing in this city. See, God, he graciously invites us into his story of transformation and renewal. It is already his story. We don't have to carry that on our shoulders, but we get to live in that reality. We get to bring our whole, true, real selves to the benefit of others, and we get to experience the benefit of others who are living to our benefit. Living as a citizen means that you are an important member of the body of Christ. And then Paul says in verse 28, he says, we need not be intimidated by the opposition. We need not be intimidated intimidated by the opposition. See, living as citizens of God's kingdom mean that we are no longer slaves to the fear of death. We are no longer slaves to the fear of death. Hebrews in chapter 2, it says that in his death, Christ destroyed the power of death, freeing us from the slavery of fear and death. Pain and suffering, those are real things. There's nothing wrong with being genuinely concerned for the painful inevitabilities of life, But at the very end of the day, living as a citizen, we know that Christ has destroyed death and we can no longer fear death. As servants of Christ, as citizens of heaven, we know that the gospel will prevail. We know that our lives are secure in Christ because Christ has defeated death. We are free to be bold. We are free to be courageous, courageous when culturally or internally there's this tension that says, why are you doing this? Why are you living so sacrificially? Why are you giving away so much money? Why are you giving away so much time? Why are you doing all of these things? Why are you putting yourself in danger? Why are you living in opposition to culture? Why are you doing these things? That we are free to be courageous because we do not fear death because Christ has defeated that power. And it's when we embrace these gospel identities, these identities of being a servant of Christ and a citizen of heaven, 
a citizen of Christ's kingdom, that our perspective of suffering, it changes. Our perspective of suffering changes from viewing suffering as a loss, as something to be avoided, of something to resist, or at best be postponed. But in this text, it says that we view suffering as a grace of God. It says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you, not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. The word granted in Greek is the same word that we get our word grace. It is the grace of God that we get to suffer for him. That is amazing. That the God that we serve, the Christ we live in service to, the kingdom that we live in, says that suffering isn't just nothing, it's actually a grace. As we live in service, live as citizens. Paul is exhorting the Philippians to suffer as he suffers. They've seen his suffering. They've heard his suffering. But more than just following Paul, we're invited to know that Christ also suffered. Christ also suffered. The Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, the King that we serve, whose kingdom we live in, is a king who has gone before us. He is a king who is giving to us his righteousness, a king who invites us into his glorious life and resurrection. He has gone before us in all of our sufferings and all of our pain and all of our anxieties and fears. We serve a king who first served us. We live as citizens of a kingdom whose ruler is the true servant king. That is who we live in service to. When we look at him, when we behold his glory, when we see what it means for us, how it shapes our lives as servants, as citizens, the lens by which we view our suffering, our circumstance, no matter how severe, gets a new lens that is the grace of God that we get to partake in this suffering along with Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incarnation of Christ, that he's gone before us, that he suffered for our benefit to your glory. And we pray that you would give us a deeper sense of who we are as servants, a deeper sense of who we are as citizens of your kingdom, and that you would give us the strength and the endurance to continue to press forward in those realities. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
As we end our service today, let us remember who we are and to whom we belong. We may experience suffering at times, but we remember that we are a people redeemed by God, and we are a people, a part of God's kingdom. Now hear this benediction from 2 Thessalonians 3.13. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Go in peace.